Lightly Literary Podcast, the friendly book hub podcast featuring two friends. I'm Travis, joined as always by my co-host Amanda. Hey Amanda. Hello. Welcome, and welcome back to a special episode of the podcast. If you're listening to this, you have discovered a book highlights episode, which are kind of special interludes that we've decided to do when we finish six books. We've decided that that was the pace where we would take a pause and take time to reflect on the books we've covered. It also is it roughly represents two months or so of reading, which is it two or three months, actually? Wow, that's a good question. Maybe two, two, two and a half? Maybe? Yeah, it depends <laughs> on the weeks and the month. <clears throat> but yeah, it yeah. roughly represents two to three months of our reading, which we felt like it was a good amount of time to check in. And also, if you're either a new listener or just an occasional listener, this is the perfect episode for you because we're going to be looking back over the books, re-recommending them, talking about them in new ways, and sort of revisiting them lightly. Our goal today is not to widely spoil them or anything. We're not here to analyze them, but rather just to think about what we've read, see what has changed in our estimation since we recorded, and most importantly, just give you a ton of ideas for books to read today. If you've listened to none of our episodes, this episode, again, is perfect to start with because hopefully you'll come out of this with at least one new book um, with an idea to read it. As I mentioned, we are the Lightly Literary Podcast. We have social media accounts that you can follow to keep up with our book reading and our book club episodes. They are Facebook and Instagram accounts. Both of them can be found at the Lightly Literary Podcast, all one word. Please rate and review us on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you found this. We're on most platforms. So, you know, tell your friends and family, recommend a book to them, and we'll be there to read along with you. Um, Today, again, we'll be doing these highlights, talking through the last six books we've done. We're going to begin with a segment that Amanda made up, so I'll let Amanda introduce it. Let's get into the book review highlights, I think. These are, by the way, for clarification purposes, if you've got an organized mind, these are books 7 through 12, so we already put up in the feed a highlights episode for books 1 through 6, so we've moved on to another batch of 6, so this is officially 7 through 12, and uh, Amanda, why don't you introduce the first segment, and you can kick it off too if if you're feeling up for it. Oh, sure. Um, first segment is free associations. That's just uh, when we think of the first noun that comes to mind when we think of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just a, a fun way for us to, to warm up a little bit. So mm-hmm. for me, for um, the first book being The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison, um, the first word that came to my mind was food. <laughs> yeah, an interesting pick. Yeah, there's a lot of food imagery in the book that I think a lot of important uh, conversations happen over food and around food Mm -hmm. and dealing with food. So I think that's why it stood out to me. And drink, too. Milk is a symbol of a kind in the book. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you remember any any specific foods without... Our goal today is not to spoil the books, more to just summarize them to you and give you a light teaser about what kind of what they're like. Do you have any foods that come to mind without, like, dramatically spoiling anything? Yeah, uh, the greens that were being burnt versus the graham cracker pyramids and the ice cream scene and lollipops and Mary Jane's specifically, which is a lollipop. Yeah, Yeah. lots of candy. Childlike foods. It is a story Mm -hmm. about young children who are dealing with kind of this trauma that befalls one of the students in their grade. And so there's, because the story shifts point of view, you hear from a couple different kid point of views in that story, actually, I think. And yeah, yeah, there are some sweet foods that do have some, yeah, some compelling things that 
roles they play in the story, I guess, is what I'll say. Without, again, mm-hmm. with, a, with a sensitivity for spoilers. My bluest eye word was simpler, I think, in a way. Maybe more elemental. And it was hurt. Uh, as in, or pain, I guess you could, if you want it to yeah. be a noun. These don't have to be nouns, do they? I think we decided that last time. <laughs> it's yeah, just whatever I word. Just, yeah, because yeah. we cool. can make any word into a noun. Pretty really, much. So. <laughs> Pretty much. And I think this book, this book is a kind of a catalog of social hurt, of social pain. One way we described it in the book clubs, if you end up reading it or go back to those, is that it's sort of, it's a look at this community and the tragedy really falls upon this one girl in the community, but because the point of views keep shifting, it kind of gives it to you from all angles. It attempts to sort of look at this southern black community and see how this pain is inflicted and kind of targeted at this one young girl. And so it's a lot of it is her pain, but it's also cataloging so much more pain. And again, I won't, you know, go into the different characters and what they represent and everything. That's for, you know, if you're intrigued by the sound of this. But yeah, it's a lot of, it's a it's a rather difficult read. It's challenging for sure in its emotions and the topics it covers. It's the only book we've issued a trigger warning for at the beginning because just the strength of some of the writing and the intensity. But yeah, hurt was my word. Mm, I think that's a great one. Yeah. For the next book... Native Speaker, this is by Chang Rei Lee, which was a, it's kind of a spy story, but it's largely a meditation on immigration and his family, and the, the narrator's family in the story immigrated from South Korea. And so it's a New York, very much a New York City story, politics, intrigue, spy stuff, but it's very meditative, very thoughtful. What was your word for a native speaker that you first thought of? Uh, secret. Mm-hmm. Yeah, talk us through it. Um... Yeah, so secret because, um, yes, this is an immigration story or the son of an immigrant story, but also um, it's a spy thriller-ish, but mm-hmm. like corporate spy, yes. but it's, um, it, which is kind of perfect actually with with the discussions of identity and stuff like that. And, and he's got so many secrets um, from his wife, from right. his friends father from himself from a a father figure like there's just secrets that seem to abound and he he's struggling with with identity which is very wrapped up in in what he can and cannot communicate and what he thinks he should communicate and not communicate yeah really well said my word which i I put confused but i think if i'm being honest the very first thing was lost and i think they're pretty related but his, mm-hmm. given his identity crisis that he's struggling to decide, yeah, it's like you said, it's perfect. He has this dual sense of he's both a spy who needs to pretend to be people, but he's also an immigrant who's kind of torn between, he's got a cultural kind of rift in his life between his father and American life and everything. And it's just a fascinating blending of those two things. It's fairly complex, this work, native speaker, but I think it rewards thoughtful reading for sure. And it's, you know... Just a really well-told, kind of a mature tale. I think we were both surprised that it had more It had more spy elements than I expected, to be sure. Like, a, considerably more. But it's not Jason Bourne, either. Like you said, it's very corporate. It's very much trading information and lying, not really murdering people or doing action set pieces. So if you hear a spy story, think more thoughtful, meditative. And the character really just does seem lost and confused for a good portion of it in terms of who he wants to be and kind of how he wants to be in the world. That shows up in his relationships, too, with his wife, so... Yeah. The next book we read, in order... Again, we're going... I should have mentioned that up front. We're going in order of the the reading order, basically. That's what we're following here. 
The next book we read was called Blood, Bones, and Butter by Gabriel Hamilton. It's a food memoir. Amanda, take it away because you've got a real you've got a real mind bender here for your connection for your <laughs> word association. <laughs> You're welcome. Uh-huh. Uh, it is again food. Maybe I was hungry when I was mm-hmm. doing this. It's such um, an honest answer, though. I mean, you could have thought about it for another minute and made up a really thoughtful, twisty, intellectual word, but you didn't. Yeah. <laughs> Um, uh, so food, obviously this is a food memoir, um, and really it wasn't so much that it's a food memoir that made me choose the word food. It's just the parts of her memoir that really stood out to me with the best descriptions and the, and the best comparisons are are, anytime that she talks about food or compares something to food. It was just, that was the, the big highlight for me. It was, it was, I think the best writing that she did mm-hmm. was surrounding food. Yeah, I mean, we thought the imagery and the deafness and kind of personality and almost warmth she gave to those moments was really meaningful. She clearly has the ear and the eye to write about food well. I put motherhood, which has not much to do with food directly, but in this book it has an enormous amount to do with food. I think my connection to motherhood for this book immediately came from the back half of the memoir where, and again, this isn't a spoiler per se, she ends up connecting with her husband's mother and kind of develops a food relationship with her and in a sense kind of admires her. She's sort of a matriarch in Italy. And I thought that unlocked maybe a bit more of the, I don't know, I was going to say sensitive or sentimental side of the book. But there's also some mother relationship stuff in the opening parts, too. She has a pretty complex relationship with her own mother, too. And so I I wouldn't Mm -hmm. say it's a book of motherhood, but most of the meaningful relationships are mother-to-daughter ones, or she has a couple friends, too, that that are meaningful. But yeah, it is... I think we'd be remiss if we didn't at least mention that the tone of the memoir is a little, it's a little more biting than friendly, I guess is how we've (laughs) decided to put it and how we put it in the episode. So maybe that'll come up in later categories. But if you're, if you hear that title, Blood, Bones, and Butter, and you walk away from this thinking, maybe I'll read it. Yeah, I guess I'd just make a note that the motherhood relationships aren't, it's not completely, you know, selfless love. It's, they're a little more complex and thorny than that. Yeah. Thorny is a good word. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. On to the next book then, the fourth one out of six, Sansei and Sensibility by Karen Te Yamashita is a collection of short stories and nonfiction reflections too, most of which is about Japanese immigrant life and kind of the descendants of Japanese immigrants, kind of like a lot of the stories are of the time period where they're not emigrating from Japan during World War II or after, but it's like the generation after that, or even after that, right? Kind of three. Mm-hmm three generations yeah. deep. Sansei is the third, yeah, third generation. Gotcha. So it's a lot, another kind of immigrant focused one. Amanda, what was your association? Talk us through it. Uh, mine was lecture yeah. um, for several reasons. There's one piece in there. It's a, the, the collection is not just short stories. There's also like a couple of almost like nonfiction. There's a couple of nonfiction pieces. Mm-hmm. There's a couple of essay topics. There's one that I'm pretty sure is a lecture. Um, but also just the overall tone you're it's it's highly academic even the fiction pieces are highly academic to where it's it's like being in a class about the uh, the Japanese immigration experience it's like you're you're actually taking a class and this is almost one of the assigned readings mm-hmm. for that class and it makes for some rich discussion right um, but that's why I chose lecture is it was very much like 
a, a grad school type reading for me. Yeah, I think your word is perfect for if I would have done these associations thinking <clears throat> what was my response to it rather than what was the content of it about, then yours, yeah, I think I would agree with you because it was a bit more formal and rigid, difficult to kind of break into in a way. And reading it alone would have been, I, I will say this straight up now, though we'll get to this in the rankings at the end. I would have given up reading this if I was reading it alone. I'm actually extremely certain of that. <laughs> but doing it with someone makes all the difference, I think, with with reading like that, dense reading, something that may not be immediately appealing. Uh, my word is aging. Um, though I don't, I want to be honest in these categories, right? The first thing I thought of was sushi, but I can't, I don't know why. And I almost felt like really stereotyp, like I was stereotyping or something. Cause sushi doesn't really play a dominant role in the book. I think why I first thought sushi was because in the first half of the book, there is a chapter of just recipes that have kind of light commentary and satire. And yeah. in those, there's not even a sushi recipe. I don't think, but there's like a sushi bake that I had also seen a recipe for online. So I think my thought just went to food because I, that was such an odd kind of detour in the book. And I really enjoyed reading the recipes actually and thought that was kind of a a nice little detour and was pretty light reading, kind of amusing. So I think that's why I went sushi first. But just to be clear, I don't think there's any sushi in any of these stories, right? That I can remember. There's, yeah, there's not. But I mean, food is, uh, it does yeah. show up in, in, in each of the stories in one way or another. But also sushi, yeah. I think is interesting, because one of the main points that she makes in several of her writings is that um, at the, the idea of like cultural appropriation and, and right. loss of identity. And one of those things is like sushi is a very popular dish, but yeah. Yeah. Japanese. I and... think, yeah, let's do, let's do your be nice to Travis, give him a generous reading of his weird word then. Cause yeah, I think <laughs> thematically it works really well because a lot of the stories are about the, the reason I went to aging. So I thought my brain went sushi and I was like, wait, what? Cause of the food thing. Why am I thinking that? And then immediately from there, I was like, well, it's about kind of aging. It's, it's about generational divide is kind of what I left with, left it with. And so, yeah, we could tie the sushi to that because it is a very, it's now become a very Americanized food. America has its own really strange interpretation of what sushi is and how we eat it and what it means. And, you know, to us, it's a, you know, this bombastic weird flavors and sauces all over. And it's kind of, we've, we've perverted it really. It's not, we don't have, we have our own interpretation, of course, as Americans, Americanized, whatever they want. That is our, that's our bag. <laughs> that's our deal. Yeah. But yeah, mm -hmm. so I think in that sense, it's actually kind of really fitting as a lot of the characters in the stories are trying to figure out how to be Japanese or how to be American and what duty they have or obligation they have to older generations. And so it's kind of the younger generations grappling with that sort of identity stuff. Aging, I think, mm -hmm. works well, too. But, yeah, if you wanted to be fair to my strange thought, maybe sushi is, yeah, kind of works. Yeah, I think it works. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we'll say so. We'll let the listeners decide. <laughs> I did, I did have to be honest, though, because it's not, your first association is not always the one that you can make the most sense of, so I did want to be honest with that. Um, let's move to the fifth book out of six. It was The Devil in the White City by Eric Larson, sort of a narrative nonfiction about the Chicago World's Fair and a serial killer who hunted people during that time, so it's kind of a dual narrative. Amanda, your association? Architecture. Yep. Um, <laughs> that's the... The, the most compelling parts from yes there are um it's like mostly evenly distributed between the architecture and then well i wouldn't even say evenly distributed it, it a lot of it is about the world's fair the chicago world's fair and um burnham 
uh, who was the architect in charge and like in charge of the entire project essentially aside from the council that he kept getting into tiffs with but yeah the the architecture pieces like the those chapters really stood out to me a lot because i feel like it, the development the first hand research it was just really well written i enjoyed the serial killer parts the hh holmes um parts mm-hmm. as well but they were more um almost like sketches brief sketches and like really really just smaller chunks of of the book overall although he did dedicate an entire chapter to it um or yes. parts i think A it part. was in four parts yeah mm-hmm. so but yeah the architecture guess what my word me. was also architecture though i'm gonna do the sushi <laughs> thing again my brain immediately conjured a picture of like a classical Roman pillar. You know what I'm talking about? Like the column, oh, yeah. you know, big yeah, white perfect. grandiose column. So that's my, that's what my brain immediately is an image conjured. And then of course my brain was like, well, the word would be architecture, not Roman column. Take either. Either's fine. I think they both fit the same idea, which is the architecture in this book very much represents these grand plans. It's very much a book interested in what do really powerful people do when they have a lot of power and influence? What do they strive for? What kinds of things do they want to achieve? And it's really documenting these grand achievements. Now, the perversion of that, the the dark side of that moon, is the Holmes narrative, which also, I you know, I want to word this carefully or something, but it, it was a grand achievement just in murder and serial killer achievement. Like it was, it was his own grand experiment, his own huge project, but it was just this immoral, obviously debased, uh, sociopathic project as well. But it's, you, you're watching these two grand plans go off at the same time. And so I think in that sense, the architecture, I just thought of like big buildings, grand intimidating structures, you know, just sort of like big plans, I guess, is where my head went. Yeah, I think that's that's great because the whole point was to uh, outdo European architects as well. Mm-hmm. So like, yeah. of course, which is funny that they went with Roman columns, but yeah, right. it's to <laughs> to outdo Europe. And also, I was just thinking, yeah, H.H. H. Holmes also designed and built his own weird murder hotel as well so Mm -hmm. there's also architecture in those chapters too yeah yeah so it's the dual narratives i thought were pretty compelling as well let's um oh yeah let's move to the final book of this six then the sixth and final book we'll discuss today is called wild in america and that's wild with an e at the end of it like oscar wild by david Friedman, is it? Uh Uh-oh, forgot the name. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) David M. Friedman. There we go. And so Wild (laughs) in America. Amanda, your association with that book? My association was uh, Persona, Mm -hmm. um, because this is a book about celebrity and how Wild um, was essentially the the first American's first celebrity in America during a time when media is really starting to take off. Um, Right. And so the the concept of public face was something that um, really uh, took a hold of my mind as I was reading this book. No, it's a perfect word. And I, I just realized I didn't do a summary of this one quick. Wild in America is a historian's attempt to chronicle when Oscar Wilde did a lecture tour in America when he was becoming famous. And essentially, it's a really clear argumentative thesis book, history thesis, that basically that Wilde was the first modern celebrity. He sort of invented it. I think unknowingly invented it. He didn't purposefully seek out these these tenants or something, but he kind of lived the life of a modern celebrity, as it turns out. And so that's the premise of the book. Yeah, my word was gossip, which... 
there's just so much newspaper type gossip in the story. The documentation and sourcing is very thorough. And I just, we talk about this a lot in the episodes, but it's just so many primary sources talking about Wilde, reacting to him, giving quotes on him, people giving opinions. I also think too, that gossip is a fitting word because his whole project in America, as it turns out, was to basically become famous through gossip instead of working. Like he did lectures and he had ideas, but he had not produced anything significant at all. And he just decided, well, I'll go try and be famous first. So it's almost like he wanted the gossip before the work, you know, he wanted to just be famous for being famous in a way, or he wanted to be a socialite essentially and get paid for it. And so, yeah, it was, he was kind of predicating his whole project on gossip. Yeah, I agree. I, I think that's such a great, great word, too, because a lot of the uh, sources that the author includes, too, is like they are just gossip, like letters, like personal letters yeah. between two people. And it's just like talking trash about like, why is he even famous? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I just I just love that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was fantastic. So much trash talking in that one. If you have oh, yeah. <laughs> if you have any interest in celebrity culture, I mean, this is obviously 150 years ago now, but it is yeah. weirdly relevant in some ways. The, some of the slander yeah. and sort of the gossip talk and everything, it's, it's shocking how little things have changed in some ways. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's the, the final book of the six. So let's move on to another category, shall we? Yeah. Okay, the next segment we're going to do to, again, try and talk into reading some of these books is called This or That. We have two categories. They're not opposites necessarily, but they're different categories. And so we're going to pick a book for this and a book for that. So, for example, the first grouping will be a book you can bring to the beach or a book you should study in a class or kind of do some follow-up studying on. Amanda, talk us through the book for the beach and a book to study in a class. Um, so for me, a book to bring to the beach would be Devil in the White City. Mm-hmm. Um, and to study would be Wild in America. Yeah. Yeah. Well, go, yeah, um, go ahead and talk us through it. Yeah. Devil in the White City is, is a, a narrative nonfiction. So it's, it reads like a novel. So it's actually quite easy to read mm-hmm. and it's very fast paced. And, um, I think that you can really get lost in it, but it's very easy also to like part of being on the beach too is like, you know, occasionally going in for a dip and like taking a nap and stuff. Yes. So it's, it's easy to find places where you can put down. There are a lot of natural breaks in, in the chapters too, to, to walk away from and come back to. For sure. Um, and wild in the city, I thought was a great study because I mean, the idea of like celebrity culture and there's a lot to discuss. You could do a whole lot more research um, especially with um, if you wanted to go in and read Wilde's lecture right. on his impressions of America and do like a case by case study, like a side by side study, I think that would be a great a great class to attend as well. Yeah, <laughs> I for I'm going to start with study as well, then because I agreed with you, Wilde in America, it just has such a clearly arguable thesis, and so. Yeah. You can kind of take and take parts and leave parts as well. He has nine chapters with clear arguments about what Wilde was doing. And so there's just so much follow-up you could do on it. You could study Wilde's writings. You could look into other contemporaries who are kind of getting famous. He, in the book, he does mention actors and actresses who kind of had some f- sort of fame that was building for them in the arts, but that, again, Wilde's project was just different than theirs. And so, yeah, I think Wilde in America is a great one to if you want to follow up or really deep dive on something. But mm-hmm. So I completely agreed with that pick. I went with a kind of an odd beach read. I think you, I think yours is going to be better. Mine was blood bones and butter. The only way, Mm -hmm. or the only reason I was thinking this is a beach read was one, the topic 
though there are really intense side topics it is ultimately about food there are a lot of passages about preparing food and and kind of having meaningful relationships with cooking and so i think that reminds me of the beach like grilling out thinking about food it is way more emotional and intricate than just you know here's why food is good you know so i guess Mm -hmm. that part of it might not be a beach read the other reason i thought of beach read though the voice is she might not be likable per se in the memoir but it is very strong, memorable, and kind of like we said before, like biting. And I think that that could make, it could hold your attention on the beach. And I know, I agree with you, beach reads are something like they come and go. Yeah, you nap for a bit, you might be drinking a little. Like it's, you're not doing a, you're not at the desk with the green lamp, you know, doing your study. <laughs> and so I think Blood Bones, it, it's going to hold your attention when she really gets opinionated and when she really dives into something. Her voice mm-hmm. is strong enough to carry your attention is, I guess, how I was thinking of it. Yeah, it, I think that um, her life is fascinating um, mm-hmm. and her imagery, too, can be really compelling for sure. But also her her tone, uh, because she can be quite um, aggressive in a yeah. lot of ways. Yeah. It would sometimes I would have to take a break from her her tone. So. Yeah, Which I guess also works for a beach because then like I'd be like, oh well, I'm, I need to take a break, so I'm gonna go dip my toes. It's in the so water true. I. <laughs> I almost think I'm kind of kicking myself because, yeah, now I think beach read. It's like you want to be with like a friend. You want to be with a friendly, smiling face. And her face just is not always that, which is I thought made for compelling reading. But you're right. It's it's not a hand holding kind of, whoa, I want to just admire this person and be lost in their wit or charm. Or, you know, she is witty and can be charming, but is that's really not her. The persona, her literary figure persona is not that (laughs) she's kind of Mm -hmm. a little more mixed up. Let's move to the next category of this or that. This is going to be a book to cheer you up or a book to help you mope. Go ahead, Amanda. So to cheer me up would be uh, Blood, Bones, and Butter, oddly enough. What a strange Um, segue. I I can't (laughs) fathom what you're about to say given our just chat about the book's tone. (laughs) But go ahead. And to to help me mope is um, The Bluest Eye. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> I know I was just talking about the tone of blood bones and butter, but the end of it, it's really uplifting. Okay. And there are parts where she's, I mean, she's like, it's a struggle for her, right? There's a lot of things going on in her life. Um, and the, the pieces where she does express real joy does bring me real joy at the same yes. time for her. So I think that's why I chose Mm -hmm. this book for cheering me up. 100% in the long run yeah Yeah. the food stuff can be truly joyous I think we even said uh, orgasmic some of it yeah I think that would could be a reading of it it's yeah so the pleasure is so intense Mm -hmm. and how about for moping so bluest eye is beautifully written but Mm -hmm. it is absolutely heartbreaking to read and it's something that is very haunting as well so um if I would say that if if you are already like super sad, this is probably like maybe maybe wait a little bit till you're in a better mood. Yeah, but, um, it's just it's something that can it, it's really thoughtful and it's also like thought provoking as far as like a, a, the sense of community and like how a community has been failed and also like fails each other because of other circumstances. Right, and it's just it can be a, it's. It can be a real downer when you look at it in certain ways. 
Yeah, I, out of respect for the intellectual power of that book and the sheer potency of it, I thought mope was the wrong word, because otherwise I'd agree. It was definitely the most tragic and the most kind of heartbreaking of everything we read. But yeah, when I looked at the word mope, it just felt almost too powerful for that. I was just like, I if I was really in a bad mood, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to appreciate its grandiose kind of achievements or something. But it's you, mm-hmm. everything you said is perfectly true. For Mope, I went with Native Speaker just because the character in it is just kind of never content. He's is kind of dour. He's looking for a you know kind of like a father figure. He's he's kind of he has a complicated relationship with his own father, not exactly a satisfying one. And so for Mope, I went Native Speaker. That book just has kind of a and because of the spy stuff, the dual narrative, dual identity, you're just never on sure footing in that book. It's just you can't really trust anyone. You can't even really trust that the narrator knows what he wants or kind of what he's pursuing and so i mm-hmm. i don't know if mope is the proper word but it has such a there's also a tragedy at the heart of it that i won't spoil that kind of drives yeah. the narrative too for his relationship so i just think and then of course you know the ending of it will again leave that to you the readers to pursue it but it is a good bu- book for moping just because there's a lack of certainty and contentment in it i don't know if you felt that way yeah for sure yeah. it's um I, there, there's so many parts of that book too that I, I was like between Bluest Eye and and Native Speaker, and I was like, no, I think Bluest Eye. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And then for Cheer Up, I went with Wild in America, and I'll the only caveat I'll say there is that the I found the front half more engaging and compelling. I felt like the back half was repeating itself a touch. Some of the chapters were maybe went on a bit long, but overall, just seeing somebody with so much unearned confidence go about living their life and achieving things was just kind of fun. And I did really appreciate Oscar Wilde is a literary figure. I had a ton of respect for and, and always will, but seeing people be so brutal and ruthless with him and like really mocking him for having achieved nothing was, I don't know, to see such a important figure torn down, it was kind of humbling. And I, I just, I don't, I don't know why that cheers me up to see that. Maybe I have like real psychosis or something, but <laughs> It was, it was almost, to, I don't know, when you see the grand people that they're human too or something, it's, that gives me a little bit of cheer. It's like, okay, he was a person too, and he was faking it till he made it also. And, you know, he didn't really have it going on. He was just a, he was a charming guy who lied a lot. <laughs> yeah. And so I, just the whole thing kind of made him more well-rounded, and I'll never think of Oscar Wilde the same way. I found a lot of the research that it dug up kind of cheerful in that it humanized a, a pretty lionized figure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, I agree. Did you feel cheered up while reading it? Except for the end. <laughs> I, I found myself chuckling sometimes. Like I, I, yeah. I, I just love Oscar Wilde too. I love, I love his writing. Yeah. And we also get to see little tidbits of Oscar's own words in, in this uh, book as well. And, and I just, it just, it did. It was very, it perked me up a lot when I got to read some of the stuff that people were snarky towards him, but he'd be snarky right back. It was just. For sure. Yeah. It was fun. Cool final category and i'm gonna change it on the fly i just noticed that the the or inspires you that's kind of like the study isn't it there's a little overlap this is my i made an error here when i designed these but that's okay i'm gonna change it on the fly it's gonna now be a book you'd reread or a book that you wish were longer or had more parts in it than it did can i change that on the fly does that make sense sure 
Sure. And maybe your answer won't change. I don't think mine will because I do have a follow-up that we said. I'll go first then because mm-hmm. I just changed it. <laughs> um, my reread is yeah. the same. It's The Bluest Eye. It's, it was the most intricate, the most uh, literary in terms of accomplishment and sheer rhetoric and craft. I thought it was the most impressive. I could easily go back and reread all kinds of characters. There were so many characters that were so dynamic to it. Every chapter gets a new point of view almost. And so you're just bouncing around this community. It's... I don't know. The whole thing just blew me away. I shouldn't be so surprised knowing who Toni Morrison was and having read some of her work. But if you've never read Toni Morrison, The Bluest Eye is an incredible starting point for its its potency, its virtu- virtuosity. And also, it's really just not that long. That's another big thing for me. I don't like rereading, rereading often. It's not something I build into my hab- reading habits. But The Bluest Eye is under 200 pages and has the effect of a 700-page book. And so I would yeah. happily reread The Bluest Eye. Um for I'm gonna for my new category that I wish were longer. I'm gonna keep my answer, which is Devil in the White City. Now, I don't wish it were longer in that I needed more facts because he really covers both of the narratives thoroughly until their their ends. Sometimes bitter ends. I just wanted pictures, and I'm gonna keep harping on this. <laughs> it did include some images in a few of the chapters, but I would quadruple, quintuple, multiply by however many, I would put 30 pages of pictures in this book. So I just wish it had more of that to immerse me a bit more. Now, Larson, to his credit, when you, if you read that story, he does a lot of literary work uh, with the imagery and setting the scene of Chicago and like establishing the setting. So maybe in his mind, he wanted that to do the heavy lifting and it did. It's evocative. It sets a mood and tone and it's really well written, but yeah, I couldn't help but wonder we only get like five pictures of the city of the buildings they achieved of Chicago in the time period. I think in total, right. There's five, maybe six pictures, maybe seven. Yeah. Cause it's like one on the cover and then yeah. one for each chapter, each part. So yeah, it's like five total. Yeah. Gosh, I just so much more. So I, that's, if I wanted it to be longer, that's why that, and that's the only thing really, I thought everything else was thoroughly wrapped up. So yeah. how about for your, this or that, Amanda? Um, so that I would reread as native speaker, mm-hmm. um, because I feel like it was really entertaining and there's so much there to really sit down and think about and to kind of uh, go back and review for me because a lot of it is, um, now that I know like the ending and stuff like that, I can go back and really look at, um, some of the, the bigger concepts about the immigrant community and mm. the the idea of what it means to be a non-native speaker and right. how that affects the um, sense of Americanism. So mm-hmm. I, I really enjoy that, and I think that'd be another. It'd be a good read, reread again because I could get even more information. Yeah, yeah, um, a book that would benefit from knowing where it's going to end because we had suspicions yeah. and a lot of predictions. But it does have some plot twistiness to it and would benefit a lot from that anyway. Yeah. And your other pick? Mm -hmm. And so that I wish were longer or had more in it, I actually will not change my answer. And that is um, Sansei and Sensibility. So Mm -hmm. one of the big critiques that you and I had about this collection is just that it seems like it's a lot of information that's just like crammed in there, right? Which is why it was almost more like a lecture style where like we would have group discussions and stuff like that. Um, 
And so, especially in the second half, so the first half would be like the the rando collections, but then the second part, which was the sensibility part, was her collection of short stories that were based off of the Jane Austen novels, but written from the Sansei perspective. And uh, one thing about those stories is that it does rely very heavily on the idea that you are very familiar with Jane Austen stories. And Mm -hmm. so if, if she had had longer stories as in like taking the time to really develop the the characters rather than just relying on the the idea that the reader is already familiar i think that those stories would would have read very differently and would have been mm, easier for non jainites to read for sure yeah non-Austinite As I reflect <laughs> on that collection, that criticism we leveraged only stands out more in my mind, which is just pick three of them and make them novellas. And I think that would have been some really compelling stuff. The the writing yeah. chops of it all, the thoughtfulness, she clearly has a you know million ideas. But I, I remember saying the criticism in the moment, it's not like I edited it out of the pod, but I think I said like I didn't learn anything new or it didn't like it didn't make me feel like I had a new depth or angle of understanding about immigrant life. I still think in a sense that true that's true, but it's not for lack of ideas, it's for lack of I couldn't grab onto anything. It was just too right. much. It was too chaotic or too I don't know, too ambitious I think is the was the generous reading I settled on, but yeah, yeah, I could keep going. I could say that point and keep going circularly back to that point over and over, and I won't. But that's, yeah, I'll never forget that feeling. So I think you chose perfectly for more, like, or just a different design or something. Different right. book project. Yeah. Okay. Let's move now to a bit of an award segment before we hand out our kind of final awards. We're going to call this Best in Quotes. This is a new segment that we cut last time, but we're going to include now. We've chosen three categories for different quotes to celebrate from these books because we do always like to give a sense of the style and the writing and the actual, you know, rhetoric and construction of the work. So we do like to give quotes. The first quote we'll start with for a category kind of award is best or most memorable image. Amanda, you can take away your award whenever you're ready. Sure. Um, I did mine from um, Blood, Bones, and Butter. Mm -hmm. And it's from page 20. It says, slowly the meadow filled with people and fireflies and laughter, just as my father had imagined. And the lambs on their spits were hoisted off the pit onto the shoulders of men, like in a funeral procession, and set down on the makeshift plywood on sawhorse tables to be carved. Then the sun started to set and we lit the paper bag luminaria, which burned soft glowing amber, punctuating the meadow in the night. And the lamb was crisp crisp skinned and sticky from slow roasting and the root beer was frigid and it caught like an emotion in the back of my throat Mm. um this is just some great imagery (laughs) Mm -hmm. i mean we can definitely imagine all this stuff so one of the you and i had actually talked about the the very first page the 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 lamb roasting imagery is just i mean it's amazing anything that she does with food is right she writes it just so beautifully and her comparisons Mm. are when it comes to food as well very unique right the the idea of root beer is like an emotion that gets caught in the back of the throat that's such a nice little comparison there that's that i've never heard before Mm -hmm. yeah yeah and the perfect beverage for it too it's such a summertime nostalgia drink it feels like it's kind of got a kind of a warmth spiciness to it so yeah, yeah it's just the perfect you wouldn't say that about you know mountain dew or something you wouldn't like, right <laughs> <No>. <laughs> like it would it would it just only works with root beer this very kind of yeah it's got a warm spice to it anyway yeah it's mm-hmm. 
Yeah, the, that whole opening chapter, I think, blew us both away. I don't know if the rest of the book holds up for every reader, you know, you can engage or not with the narrative, but it opens extremely well, potently. Mm-hmm. Oh, cool. Yeah. Any other thoughts on that quote? Uh, nope. Okay. My best or most memorable image will come from The Devil in the White City by Eric Larson, a book that has no shortage of it. Uh, This comes from page 333, and I hope it's not a spoiler to say that this is when the fair is over. Like, the fair ended. That's just a history fact. I hope that's not a spoiler. (laughs) But it's from the end of the fair. Um, And the quote reads, That night the exposition illuminated the fairgrounds one last time. Beneath the stars the lake lay dark and somber, Stead wrote, but on its shores gleamed and glowed in golden radiance the ivory city, beautiful as a poet's dream, silent as a city of the dead. And it really capped off that entire project just so perfectly in my mind. I will never forget that line. And it's it's really is the death of it and the kind of the pristine imagery the ivory the rarity of it all this thing that they achieved but that also knowing that it had to end and that they they really chased after labored after something that was in you know impermanent and they they did something beautiful but that all beautiful things eventually go away too and it it had such a sobering ending after such a dramatic and the book really is dramatic and how it wants to present the narrative and them trying to figure out how to build these things and get funding and every every obstacle there's a million obstacles and so just to have it end that way i thought put such a somber end cap on it and i'll i'll never forget the way that concluded yeah yeah eric larson is I mean, I know that he's like a researcher and you have these ideas of like, oh, researchers, it's just going to be like so dry and stuff. But he can really create a scene and really mm-hmm. create a mood to go with it. And, For and sure. it's based on research, but he just writes it so wonderfully. Yeah, he does want to absorb you in a story like fashion. For sure. It's the mm-hmm. most readable history maybe we've covered for sure. Though yeah. Wild in America was quite readable, too, but in a different way. Very different. Yeah. Way. Yeah. Okay. Next award for quotes will go for or go to rather the best character or person moment because some of these are people, <laughs> and so I didn't want to rule out the nonfiction. So best best moment for a character description or something. Amanda, again, take it away. Um, I chose mine from <laughs> the bluest eye. Sure. Yeah. And me too. <laughs> of course, right? <laughs> it's just I honestly thought about picking a page randomly to see if it would work, and I really think it would have. Like literally any <laughs> yeah. page. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Toni Morrison is all about the character development. It is integral to her entire theme. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so I chose um, from pages seventy-two to seventy-three. It's the interaction between. Um, among Marine, Claudia, Frida, and Piccola when they, Marine is like this um, half, half black, half white child who mm-hmm. thinks that she's beautiful and everybody treats her like she's beautiful because right. she's got green eyes and she's light skinned and all this stuff. Um, so it starts with, you stop talking about her daddy, I said. What do I care about her old black daddy, asked Marine. Black, who you call him black? You. You think you so cute. I swung at her and missed hitting Piccola in the face. Furious at my clumsiness, I threw my notebook at her, but it caught her in the small of her velvet black for she, back, for she had turned and was flying across the street against traffic. Safe on the other side, she screamed at us, I am cute, and you ugly. Black and ugly, black emos. I am cute. She ran down the street, the green knee socks, making her legs look like wild dandelion stems that had somehow lost their heads. The weight of her remark stunned us, and it was a second or two before Frida and I collected ourselves enough to shout, Six-finger dog-tooth meringue pie! 
We chanted this most powerful of our arsenal of insults as long as we could see the green stems and rabbit fur. Um, so I chose this quote, or this long scene rather, uh, just mm-hmm. because these are very serious themes that are being portrayed, but from the perspective of children. And and it's you can tell that these are children just looking at the, the insult, right? They're calling her Meringue Pie because they're playing on her name, Maureen. Right. So it's very childish, and it's it's just heartbreaking that they're taught at such a young age, obviously such a young age, that about the ideas of, like, beauty standards and stuff. And this is something that's really that the the main character Claudia that the main one of the main narrators Claudia really grapples with throughout um her her narration and Piccola as well her obsession with the blue eyes it's all really important with with image and just being taught at such a young age yeah it's there's just so many different angles of social kind of pain and anguish and everything in this book and the one between the kids the way is it claudia claudia is kind of the main character ish right other than piccola yeah she's like the main narrator yeah yeah the way she kind of goes after that new girl and immediately wants to take up arms against her in a way because of her complexion and her beauty and everyone you know the kids are all in awe of her because she's mixed and that like sets her apart and everything and it's the way race and class and there's yeah i mean there's no shortage of amazing character work but that quote is a really intricate one to, to have. It's a great one to pick. I chose mine from the Charlie chapter because I felt like I had to. If this book, gosh, how do I say this without spoiling it? I, you know, he's as close as there is to a villain in the book. If you can have a villain, you know, in a traditional way, I feel like this book would not work as well without this chapter. I don't think its construction is perfect or something, nor do I think that was the mm-hmm. intention of it for mm-hmm. sure. But I, most of the scenes I'll remember from this book will come from his parts. Well, that and his wife's chapter, actually, I remember a lot of that, those images yeah. too. But I just think, you know, immediately in the book, what's going to happen. So the way it builds up that suspense and tension where you're waiting, like, okay, when is this going to occur? When is this horrific thing going to happen? And again, I'm dancing around this for a reason. I don't want to spoil, but yeah, I just think without this chapter, this book would be, perhaps not as mind-blowingly good or intricate or something. It would just be amazing. <laughs> and instead, it's, you know, what it is. Anyway, some quotes from page 160 about Charlie. It says, Abandoned in a junk heap by his mother, rejected for a crap game by his father, there was nothing more to lose. He was alone with his own perceptions and appetites, and they alone interested him. It was in this godlike state that he met Pauline Williams, and it was Pauline, or rather marrying her, that did for him what the flashlight did not did not do. The constantness, varietylessness, the sheer weight of sameness drove him to despair and froze his imagination. To be required to sleep with the same woman forever was a curious and unnatural idea to him. To be expected to dredge up enthusiasms for old acts and routine ploys, he wondered at the arrogance of the female. Nothing, nothing interested him now, I jumped ahead. Not himself, not other people. Only in drink was there some break, some floodlight, and when that closed, there was oblivion. But the aspect of married life that dumbfounded him and rendered him totally dysfunctional was the appearance of children. Having no idea of how to raise children, and having never watched any parent raise himself, he could not even comprehend what such a relationship should be. And then it goes on. Those are the quotes I'll pull for now. Not a sympathetic figure. You're not meant to like Charlie agree with his morals his decisions none of that is has to be true but i mean we have to reach an understanding i think that's what the boldness of morrison's project is kind of like well 
in one chapter of peace, I'm going to try and make you understand this group of people that surround this tragedy and the economic kind of efficiency of her descriptions, the way she can. So she loves listing. And I think I tried to highlight that in the quotes, right? It's a lot of efficient, like, and even syntactic kind of list and playing with the ideas and getting them out quickly. And there's also some kind of, you know, there's flow to the sound of it too. It's very poetic. A lot of with assonance and what's the other one <laughs> these are the literary terms i like know and then don't know alliteration it's just yeah it alliterates well it, there's just a, a very beautiful sound to it. it's a poet's ear but yeah i just if you end up reading this book you'll be prepared early because there's a lot of allusions and references to the kind of key plot points of it but yeah i just don't think this book would stick with me as much without that chapter yeah charlie's chapter is the the most difficult as far as like you you feel sorry for him in some ways and it does help you to understand his personality but at the same time you're just like still really horrified by oh, him yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a great chapter. Yeah, it's a sure. really horrific. And I, even, even as I went back to the quote I was just reading, I forgot how much of the – she has such a subtle eye for kind of the masculinity of him and the how that manifests and what that even means, not only to him but maybe as a, to a community or something. And there's so many issues that rope in with it too, not only his own being raised the way he was but also ideas of – kind of labor economics like what is his purpose what can what is offered to him you know what can his life even be does he have options and the way that torments him and then yeah finding himself in in alcohol and I, yeah i don't know you could go you could just ramble forever about the the issues at play and just the intricacy of it all so yeah had to pick something from the bluest eye honestly could have picked from any chapter so <laughs> just read that book uh anyway <laughs> final quote will be more of a goofy one we're gonna go with the most likely quote the quote most likely to be turned into an internet meme or a quote that reminded you of an internet meme because if nothing else here on the pod amanda we like to keep up with the youth culture got to get that it's tiktok true. account made soon asap <laughs> So if you can either make your case that one of these should be an internet joke or reminded you of one, do you want me to go first? Because this category is weird and I made it up. Yeah. I think we both chose from the same book as yeah. again. So. Wild in America, right? <laughs> of course. <laughs> Have you ever seen the meme? Otherwise, I'll describe it for our dear listeners. Have you ever seen the internet meme of the two Spider-Men pointing at each other? No. <laughs> it's commonly used online to point out hypocrisy. So when someone, you know, politicians or famous people say something hypocritical, people will post the meme. To, it's kind of like a person pointing at himself and like blaming. It's like you want to blame someone else, but in reality, it's just you. This is your fault and you should be blaming yourself. It's, mm -hmm. it's a hypocrisy based meme, essentially. I have to pull this quote from the bottom of 148 in Wild in America. He told the Salt Lake Herald, I am quite conscious that much of what I may say may be annoying. After all, I came to America to say it. And so long as an audience with such breeding allow me to strut my brief hour upon the stage, I should be singularly stupid not to take advantage of the opportunities given me. The strut my brief hour upon the stage line was inspired by a passage from Macbeth. It's fascinating to note, however, that Wilde omitted the next line from Shakespeare's tragedy. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, and signifying nothing. So this is the most self-aware and self-critical Wild is in the whole book. And he, of course, does it through a, a literary allusion to Shakespeare that you have to know Shakespeare to even understand. So, of course, it's very wild. You know, he's an intelligent person, well-educated. But that line, that paragraph just blew me away in the book because he spends so much of it building himself up and lying and presenting. And this is the one moment mm -hmm. where he seems to imply that 
he's doing a really meaningless task and just bamboozling everyone and maybe he has nothing to offer the world <laughs> that maybe everything he's doing is pointless and so i just found that whole section mind-blowing it reminded me of the spider-man meme where he sort of it's like he wants to show people don't you see that this is an act and i'm not offering anything meaningful but then again he also seems to deeply believe in the project and his lectures and all of his philosophies it just seemed so self-aware but that the book there's just not a lot of moments like that in the book he seems to pretty heartily believe in himself his abilities and his whole project like i've said so I, that moment just kind of shocked me i was like wow is he is is he aware then does he is he critiquing his own kind of shallowness or something and anyway that mm -hmm. quote will always stick with me i thought it was the spider-man meme <laughs> i love it <laughs> yeah yeah just kind of acknowledging his own hypocrisy in the most wild way possible so he makes for an intricate study and a complex figure so that book is if you have any interest in celebrities and uh it's kind of a fun ride in that regard and for your meme amanda yeah. for mine also from wild um this one's from page 141 um, and he says, this is uh, wild says, I admire the middle ages because their social life was natural and not harassed by petty rules. Yeah. And then the, uh, author comments in parentheses, one can only imagine what a 10th century surf would have made of that comment. Sure. Um, so I'm just imagining that wild's comment on like some pictures of like surfdom and how horrific mm -hmm. actually it was back then, but God. just the, uh, the elitism is uh, palpable a lot of the time with wild. <laughs> yeah, I can picture that becoming an internet meme. The visual component would be the quote in really fancy text, really intricate font, splayed mm -hmm. over the image of someone just covered in mud and shit and just like doing some <laughs> yeah. farming, you know? <laughs> their social life Perfect. was natural, not harassed by petty, or, you know, or maybe they're, you know, outside the castle walls, like being killed or something by an invading force. And yeah. Just like out in the fields being slaughtered or something not the petty rules though <laughs> they live they live natural and free right right yeah wild is man I'll, I'll always think of him differently now that book really changed my perception on him and his own self-awareness i ended up mm -hmm. really spiraling in that second chapter not second chapter that second episode if you the listeners if you end up listening to it because I just don't even know if he was a happy person or even what his, I don't know, his whole mindset now, just knowing how much he lied to everyone he knew, it just kind of <laughs> blows me away to think, <laughs> I don't know if anyone actually knew this man, you know? <laughs> yeah. He really put on quite a mask. It was kind of shocking to me. Anyway, but his the literature holds up, frankly, so there's that. We'll always have that. Okay. Any other awards you want to give out off the cuff? Um, I don't think so. I think we'll settle on three. We're hitting the hour mark, which the timing of this is perfect, because we have one final segment that I think gets down to brass tacks. If you've listened to all this and you're still undecided on these six books, you don't know which ones you like, we will make one final attempt by comparing and ranking them in order, what we would recommend, and it's kind of a one through six, just straightforward ranking. Um, we're also going to compare to Goodreads. Goodreads is a reading website where it allows users to review books and rate them, and it, it has a massive database and massive user base. So the, the rankings on these are actually pretty thorough. It's not like 100 people rated them. It's like Devil in the White City had like 100,000 rankings. You know, it's not, it's a pretty mm -hmm. big pool. So it's, I think in terms of comparing against the reading public, it's about as good as we can get, right? Yeah. For There's sure. not really another way to do a survey of that many readers. So we're going to compare our rankings of these to Goodreads, and then we'll, we'll give one brief kind of final pitch on each of them, maybe try and mention something we haven't said yet about the books, and just kind of explain our rankings. Um, you ready to go, Amanda? 
Yeah, I'm ready. Let's rock and roll. We will do Goodreads, then you, then me. How about that? Okay. Okay. So Goodreads number one ranking. I was shocked by this. The Bluest Eye with a 4.08 out of five. Goodreads ranks out of five stars. So 4.08 average. Uh, I also ranked the Bluest Eye number one. And Amanda, for you? Same. Bluest Eye number one. It's a literary masterpiece. You just have to read this book. I don't, there's not really, I can't, we've sold it so hard in the book recommendation. We sold it so hard. I was just surprised that the people of Goodreads agreed. I think a lot of people probably get forced to read this in high school kind of advanced curricula or something. So maybe it has an audience there, but Toni Morrison's a legend. This book is incredible. It's the first book she ever published, a major book, novel. And I was just stunned by it. I don't know what else to say. I feel like I've said everything. What do you have to say about it? <laughs> it's an, I this this was the second time that I read it. I did read it for my yeah. English class, and and I would read it again. It's great. Yeah, yeah. It's so powerful. Like we said, tragic, really devastating. But I don't. It just does all the things I hope all literature could do as well. I just wish there were more Toni Morrison's. I guess it's a naive wish, but I'll keep wishing it. (laughs) Also, I will say, this is a personal reading preference thing. It is potent and short, and that is like the ultimate tempting combo for me. It's under 200 pages and feels way longer. It's bursting with ideas Mm -hmm. and complexity. So anyway, The Bluest Eye with a Bullet, not even close for me. (laughs) It's number one by a long shot, I think. Number two, then, for Goodreads, this I would have predicted, by the way, would have been number one. It is not, though, and that is The Devil in the White City with a 3.98 out of five. Uh, My number two is Blood, Bones, and Butter. And how about for you, Amanda? My number two is Native Speaker. Oh, so we changed it up here. Thoughts on Devil in the White City being there, number two? It's just very readable and makes history really engrossing. What do you think? Yeah, Yeah, I'm not surprised by that at all. He's, um, He's a national bestseller, and it's... It's a, a piece of Americana, right? And people right. love reading about their country and, and how great it is. So, yeah, it makes sense. And he's, right. he's a wonderful writer. I was surprised it didn't break a four. I mean, it's an arbitrary number, and it basically did. But I just thought more people would – maybe people didn't find the dual narratives to be – to connect enough or something. I don't know. Mm. I just thought that would be, like, almost a five. I, <laughs> I thought it had all the checkboxes that people who wanted a casual but, like, in – intellectual-ish read i thought it, they would love that but yeah yeah i'm not sure where i didn't dig into the reviews so i'm not sure where it fell off for people but i would have guessed that would have been even higher than evelyn hugo which was like a 4.4 4 or something way up there yeah i would have crazy yeah i would have predicted it would have been higher but that's good reads too my number two blood bones and butter i just w- it was such a refreshing reminder to know that memoirs don't have to be likable to be thought-provoking and good i just thought i f- i enjoyed following her journey even though it was messy and i actively disliked things that she thought said and did not everything and i think we said this in the episode but she's not immoral or she's not a bad person but she just lays out all of it including the ugliness and so her whole journey as a chef in that book i just ended up being really compelled and the more I reflected on it when I wanted to put together the list, um, I really almost wanted to put my number three as two, but I, I guess I just gave it the boost because because of that truth again, that it's a memoir mm-hmm. where you probably won't walk away thinking, I want to hang out with this person, but you'll think, you know, what a messy bit of humanity they've lived. And I kind of admire parts of it and kind of dislike her <laughs> in some ways, you know, not again, not profound ways. So right. I just, yeah, the more that grew in my estimation, the more I thought about it. So that's my number two. And for you? For for native speaker, I just I really appreciated that this is an immigrant story, but it's told in a completely different way where it's not just a family drama. There is family drama, 
but there's yeah. also the ramifications of 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 the immigrant mindset mm. in in America and in, in, in New York where everybody is an immigrant almost, right? Right. <laughs> and, right. And the and how that plays out on on a political stage as well. And it's just so when when it comes to immigrant or immigrant memoirs and, and immigrant stories, uh, I think of like Amy Tan. It's like the quintessential immigrant story where it's okay. like based on the family drama and based on how one particular person experiences. And it's very much almost always like a memoir in a lot of ways. Whereas right. this one, it's, I mean, it talks about so many broad ideas, the sense of community and everything. There's just so many important ideas that I just absolutely fell in love with this novel. It was a thrill to see it done with the novelistic lens or the novelistic approach because it did allow for so much creativity and some of the way things are presented, different character interactions. And a memoir, you're constrained to real life, which can be weirder than fiction, but also can be way more boring than fiction. It can kind of cut both ways. So... Yeah, no, I think putting it with the spy stuff is... That's why it fell down my list, which I'll get to when I talk about it, but it did work, though, so I don't want to make it sound like it doesn't work. It works, for sure. Cool. Number three for Goodreads is Wild in America with a 3.76. Just to be clear, the next three books are basically tied, but they are technically apart. So number three is technically Wild in America, which shocked me. My number three is The Devil in the White City, which I considered for two, but I think I'm happy with three. And yours, Amanda? Mm Mm-hmm. My number three is also Devil in the White City. Oh, okay. Well, let's let's start before Goodreads then. I, it's just such a readable thing. I admired how the dual narratives played off each other without being pedantic. It is a book that mm-hmm. will leave you to make a lot of connections on your own. The, this could have been two separate books to be 100% clear, and I, I don't even know if it would be lesser. In my mind, it would be lesser because I really enjoyed kind of my own the the way my brain interpreted them and kind of read into the thematic threads I just ended up loving that I think both the narratives kind of have their slumps in a sense like the the architecture history and then the serial killer plot like they have moments where they flag but in general for being almost 400 pages or whatever it ended up being so readable it was one of the ones that I actively wanted to go to bed at night to like read it in bed or something I would like look forward to going to bed to be like I want to read another 50 pages very enjoyable, very readable. It's fast paced, even though like there's a yeah. lot of discussion about history and, and actual architectural um, concepts. Just so well done as far as like pacing a lot of the time and just beautiful scenery and imagery and just mm-hmm. just just great overall. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed it, too. And, and I generally don't care as much for nonfiction, but right. because this is a narrative nonfiction, I just found it absolutely compelling. If you can't grab onto this, then you really don't want to read about history. Then this is about as yeah. like <laughs> novelistic as history can be without being fraudulent or something. He already takes some interpretive exactly. um, freedoms and liberties. But yeah, this is about as enjoyable in the novelistic sense as it gets. Wild in mm-hmm. America, number three on Goodreads shout outs. I, I think that speaks to the charm of Oscar Wilde and the clarity of the book. The author is very clear in his presentation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was stunned it was third. Well, also, it's it's uh, I'm not too surprised because mm-hmm. it does make the connections to modern celebrity culture very clear oh, yeah, throughout as well. And, um, and and people enjoy reading about like the the historicity of of 
um, things that they are familiar with in current times. So I think that he did a good job with, um, Friedman, the author, did a good job with Mm -hmm. making those connections very clear from the beginning and throughout. Look, I I have to call you out because I don't think historicity is a word, but I love because it sounds like atrocity. So I just love that we have the history, history tra- atrocity combo. <laughs> uh, I'm going to start using that word yeah, because you yeah. know what? We have degrees in English. So I'm pretty sure that means that we can make up hey, English words. It's what the bard would do. <laughs> if Shakespeare can make up something like a hundred plus new words just because, I mean, why can't, why don't people do that more often? They honestly should. <laughs> Shakespeare got away with so much that we allowed him so much freedom with the language. Right. We, we should all be making up way more words. <laughs> exactly. And having more fun with it. Yeah, I like a historicity. That sounds, <laughs> America's co- committed a few. <laughs> so <Yep>. anyway. Um, <laughs> so at Wild in America 3, Goodreads, moving on to 4. They have blood bones and butter at four to be clear with a 3.75 so literally 0.01 off of so they're ba- you know whatever it's basically tied yeah my number four is native speaker and your number four amanda wild in america okay we've spoken on a lot of these my thoughts on goodreads having blood bones there is I, people i could see thinking i want to hear about a charming chef who's likable and can teach me about family and food reading it and being so annoyed being like who is this person and why is she so caustic (laughs) you know yeah i'm not surprised at all by that ranking any thoughts Mm -hmm. on that one uh no i i think that's that's partly why but also just her um she's also apparently like a celebrity chef too right so that's um despite her caustic nature and, and the way that she uh aggressively writes i think that um, she does have a very clear message as well in her memoir, which people can right. can often actually like that her ideas too are about the idea of like clean and clean cooking and right. honest cooking right. and family and stuff. So those are themes that people can really cling on to throughout the memoir. But as even well. her family life is can just seem so foreign to some people. I bet she just has yeah. really lived a life with some bold choices, and I just. I just loved looking at it through a mirror or through a lens or something, but I could see people who wanted to feel a sense of familial comfort with a writer, like being like, who, how have you lived? Like, what are you, you're doing what? <laughs> and mm-hmm. why are you doing this? And so anyway, yeah, but that's so forth. My fourth is native speaker. I thought it was an incredible novel and again, put so many nice literary touches on a story that you're right, often gets put into the memoir box and kind of is restrained. I just, I guess thinking of it now, it didn't rank higher because maybe parts of it were overly wrought or overdone, but the whole book was not. I'll have a fond memory of reading it. And I, of all the books, I, I dog ear pages all the time when I'm reading and I sometimes will annotate if I have a pencil on me. But, and I, I marked so many pages in that book just because of the sheer virtuosity of the writing or what have you. I think it was the most mm-hmm. kind of delicately written other than Bluest Eye, the most literary. So I really love Native Speaker, but I just, maybe the ideas didn't resonate as much as the other two above it, but it's, I couldn't recommend it more if you're looking for a novel. And again, the spy stuff surprised us, but it's not Jason Bourne or something. It's very right. thoughtful, very kind of slow paced and everything. And yeah, maybe the politics didn't, it's very nineties too. I'll say like it's aged yeah. in a weird way. It's very time mm-hmm. and place, New York city. So, and you're a uh, number four thoughts. Um, so wild in America, I just, first of all, I just, I, I love Oscar Wilde and I yeah. like, and I liked that this was not just a biography of Oscar Wilde. There are components of that. Um, but it's an in-depth look at a part, a particular part of his life that is um, 
relevant for what's going on in celebrity life today. So I just, I enjoyed that aspect of it as well. For sure. Moving to number five and six, we'll do, we'll do each at a time. I just want to speed it up a bit. Goodreads ranked number five uh, would be native speaker with a 3.73. In my mind, that makes wild in America, blood bones and native speaker all tied. And you know, they're so close. And in my mind, that's a perfect grouping because there are like really well done but have niche kind of flaws in a way where I could see somebody Mm -hmm. going into them with certain expectations being shocked by choices that they made or sort of like the boldness of some of them. My number five is Wild in America, which I probably should just call a tie with Native Speaker. And your number five? Sansei and Sensibility. Right on. Um, Why don't you speak on it first then? Because I I don't have a ton to say about the other two. Why don't you speak on that one? We really haven't talked about it yet. Yeah, um, that's because you got you and Goodreads ranked it last. Indeed, yes, we did. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I put Sansei and Sensibility above Blood Bones and Butter for yeah. me. Um, and Sansei and Sensibility was a difficult read in a lot of ways. And, and Blood Bones and Butter also was a difficult for me was a difficult read for me in a different way. Um, but I think that Sansa and Sensibility has a lot of ideas that I just found really interesting and that I wanted to kind of like dig more into. And with my own knowledge of Jane Austen novels, um, the the latter half of it, I felt like there were just glimpses of like some really good pieces that I could really um, delve into if, if I took the time to actually sit down. And this is like a book that I would love to sit down and really study just like I mean piece by piece do some research on like history maybe like shoot off an email to um the author ask some questions like that kind of stuff so it it interests me and it makes me want to do more with the book itself which is why I chose that over blood bones and butter because while blood bones and butter I think has some really beautiful imagery and I think that she's got she had an amazing journey and like not to say that I didn't like the book at all because I did enjoy it um but this book was a lot harder for me because it was the organization for me was really off um in a lot of ways it didn't it wasn't quite chronological and like the connections that she was making that it was just it threw me off in a right, lot of ways. Right. And then the caustic tone also, sometimes I just, I really needed to take a break from that a lot of the time. Whereas with Sante and Sensibility, it's it's meant to be little pieces. So I could finish a piece and just be like done for the day. Right. Um, right. So between the two, that's why I chose Sante and Sensibility over Blood Bones. Yeah. I'll talk about my five. Let's just get to the Goodreads six then. It is Sante and Sensibility on Goodreads is uh, sixth place, last of these of this batch with a 3.43. So I would say a noticeable drop off from the others though. I'm surprised it got above a three. I don't know. I'm, I I feel like I know the book reading public based on Evelyn Hugo pretty well. Right. And I just, if that book is a 4.4, I thought Sansei would be like a 2.0. It's just so, so much less approachable. You, you have to just mentally grapple with it in a completely different way than a book like Evelyn Hugo in our, in our other batch. So, mm-hmm. I, you know, it got above a three and like pretty high above it. So I think that's in a way an accomplishment for something that complicated. It is also my number six. And then you talk through your six. 
only a couple final thoughts. I put Wild in America as fifth. I, just a charming read. Makes you know he makes his case so well. Wild's a fascinating character person to follow. So I yeah. The only thing about that book is the back half just didn't read as amazingly fun as the first half, I guess, but there's still mm-hmm. a lot to enjoy. I just, some of the later points were just kind of a little limp compared to the early ones. I think he gets out a lot of the, I don't know. I don't want to say like impressive arguments, but pretty clear and interesting perspectives early. And then the back half is just kind of repeating some things about wild. And I just didn't, I guess the back half wasn't as revelatory, but it's still, you know, a fascinating fun read the whole way through. I, yeah, light criticisms, really, but it had to go somewhere, so it's fifth for me. And Sansa, mm-hmm. I don't know what else I could say that would be new. I can completely get why Goodreads it ranks down there. It's just an intellectual work where I, the best part of reading that book for me will always be having given you a half an hour on Book Club 2 to make to talk about the Jane Austen connections that I missed a ton of. <laughs> the, the second half of that, Sansei, is just her trying to rewrite Jane Austen stories into kind of modern Japanese-American settings. And I feel like so much of it went over my head. I hadn't felt like a dullard in that reading way in so long. You know, I feel like I put my all when I want to read and engage with something and this book just left me feeling so confused about what I should have taken away, what I was meant to grapple with. And yeah. And I the Jane Austen angle was great. It was great to hear from you on that. If, if you're a listener and you are thinking you're not going to read Sansa and Sensibility, then at least go listen to book club part two. when Amanda talks about the Jane Austen connections. Cause it's Yeah, there is some interesting work there, but it feels academic to me, and I agree with you. It would require kind of a college professor's guidance to make me really appreciate it, I think. Mm Mm-hmm. So that's it is my number six as well, and I lined up with Goodreads. I was in agreement a lot more with Goodreads on this than I thought I would be, top and bottom. Yeah. Yeah. Mine was pretty similar except for the Sunset Sensibility, Mm -hmm. but the, uh, yeah, Yeah. I'd say. There's some outliers. And Blood Bones yeah. for me was much higher than for you or for, well, kind of than Goodreads. That middle bunch is kind of can be mixed up, I think, a yeah. fair amount. Um, but yeah, clear front runners for Goodreads, Bluest Eye, Devil in the White City. Hey, respect on Bluest Eye, really, because we latch onto it strongly, and so did the reader, reading public. So that's you know good to feel. And we didn't flip it because last time we did this, the number one Goodreads book by far was my number six. So yeah, <laughs> I, yeah, just to see this come back in a strange way is kind of kind of interesting. The final takeaway from this, and then we'll close this out, is I joked with you that I think our our literary reading sweet spot is in like the high ranking threes. I don't know how many Goodreads mm-hmm. books we'll get we'll do that are back in that four zone. I'm sure plenty. Yeah. You know, it's not like we're trying to be. Gosh, we're really not trying to be pretentious or elitist or something, but I, we like to pick things that are maybe not super pop culture genre quick reads. I mean, we like to dig into something a little more meaty, I guess we'd say. But so our, our sweet spot on Goodreads might just be in the three zone, you know? I kind of joked with you yeah. and said that, but that could just be end up being our niche, which I think is perfect. Any yeah. final thoughts on your rankings or theirs? No. Excellent. Makes sense to me. Well, another batch of books down, another one coming up. If you've listened this far, I hope really that you got an idea of a book to go pick up soon from the library or a bookstore or something. Maybe a couple ideas that would thrill us. The podcast episodes we've done on these books, the six of them that we talked about, are going to be up in the feed for as long as this podcast exists. So you can always go back through the archives and dig those up. Whenever you get a chance to read, we will be there ready to discuss the book with you. Any other, I guess, final thoughts from today in this uh, batch of books, Amanda? I don't think so. Quick hot fire question then. Hot potato. Is this batch of six better than the first batch? Which one would you, if you had to give up one or the other, which one are you giving up? 
Oh man, I this batch was just really great, actually. Mm-hmm. But yeah. uh, we chose such great books. The other one too. Oh, this is hard. <laughs> I think I'm keeping the bluest eye carries this one on its massive literary shoulders for me. Like yeah, it's dragging the other ones. Bluest eye and native ones. speaker just killed it. I think I agree. Ooh yeah, and Devil in the White City too. I mean, the first one. I really loved Hard Boiled at Wonderland, and even yeah. all, I even think back on the myths pretty fondly just because of their zaniness and like some of the kind of just odd tone and like weird happenings. But and you know, and the King will always have a strong first impression for me. I always admire that that we dug into mm-hmm. some Stephen King for the first time. I really like that one. The others I could take or leave some of them, but no, I think Bluest Eye and Devil in the White City are dragging the rest of these across the finish line heavily for me. Yeah. I think like those yeah. were both gripped me completely so yeah this batch for me they're all great though and book highlights for one through six are up go check that out listeners all right we've dragged on we are the lightly literary podcast where we drag on forever (laughs) that's our deal that's our (laughs) shtick thanks as always for listening and considering some reads we have other books coming up soon so just keep your eye on the feed this week we're just posting these highlights but next week we'll be back with the normal cadence of book recommendations and book clubs so follow us and keep your eye on the feed And as always, we'll see you between the pages.